gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room, episode 74A for Tuesday, June 16th, 2015. Uh, this is not a full review, or this is not a full episode, and it's not really a review episode. It's kind of uh, both things as we await our third quarter quell. We, uh, yeah, we wanted an extra week to sharpen our knives for the quarter quell. Yeah, so. against each other. Slash our- come up with an idea for it, so <laughs> if you yeah, have one. Sharpen our wit. To race you all to the cornucopia. Oh, boy. Because remember, it's all uh, is the Hunger Games, right? Uh, as much as you'd like to forget it. Um, but even though this isn't a proper episode, we still have a rev- some reviews to share that uh, we wanted to read out, including from some people who are waiting for their voicemail with all the singing. So, uh, But Katie promised to them yeah. without asking anyone if she should That's, promise that. Listen, but I we're doing it all on Skype. I can record it. Well, yeah, as soon as we have Dave, all of us together. Right. Yeah, we'll do exactly. it. Exactly. And uh, you just have to get us your email address somehow. So uh, get in touch. Uh, anyway, um, but w- yeah, we have two reviews. The first from Mr. Manager. And I'll warn you guys in advance that this is, there's some inside inside jokes here Ooh. in reference to a, uh, I don't know, it's in reference to a comment thread on the Dissolves review <laughs> of me and Earl and <laughs> the Dying Girl, oh, okay. if you really want to be fully informed. Uh, Mr. Manager says, no bell curvy Ehrlich. Looking for a place where you can go celebrate a new masterpiece every couple weeks and where there's a lot, a lot of love for a lot, a lot of movies? Then boy, howdy, have you stumbled upon Podcast Eden. Gaze and wonder at David Ehrlich's endless stream of rave reviews, which promises to continue for as long as movies are being made. Marvel at the survival instincts of Patch's undying, even after countless assassination attempts, love of the Green Lantern. <laughs> Be chilled to your core at Katie's appreciation for Begin Again editor's note begin again is on cable a lot right now and it's truly possibly the worst movie ever made and katie is a monster for thinking otherwise jeez yikes the first five minutes are just uh, <laughs> uh, and, and be continually surprised when dave is allowed to speak Aww. all in all there is not one movie that has ever been made that not one person on this show likes the opinions may be a bit too easy to praise but it's just my speed because i love far and away I don't think we're too easy to praise. I, we just I, all have different tastes. Us of I, I get, again, again, I would point you towards the comment section on the Dissolves Me and Earl and the Dying Girl review, which provide proper context for that entire review. Wait, which what I happens in there? The Maybe I haven't even read it, I guess. It, what? Uh, it was all about how uh, Scott Tobias gave the film, uh, he panned it. And somebody mentioned that they were holding out hope because I gave the movie a positive review at Sundance, to which point... Uh, Mike D'Angelo said that I, if, like, if only he could like as many movies as I did, and everyone was like, oh, if the Ehrlichs of the world who get to enjoy every movie like it's a masterpiece, and I was just sort of watching with my jaw on the floor. So because, this is really about you, is that what you're saying? When you yeah, see no, things, it's about how about I am, am a, an easy lay. Although Mike D'Angelo uh, did recant and say that it was simply, not that I loved every movie, uh, as listeners of this podcast already well know, but that I'm effusive about the films that I do love, which uh, I'm happy to, to be. You call a movie or two a masterpiece, but uh, anyone who thinks yeah. it's very easy, like, should just listen to the Jurassic World. <laughs> like, Indeed. Literally less than a week ago. Well, I wasn't on it, 
So, oh, shit, you're right. <laughs> then they should definitely listen to the Jurassic World review. That review was a masterpiece of the yellow. Our other review by Sweet Cabs says, clickbait podcasting? What? I've been meaning to oh. write a review for a while now, but never could remember to when I was on a non-mobile device. But I could resist no longer once they offered to leave me a voicemail of them doing an acapella oh, version shit. of the Jurassic Park theme. So, yeah, I've been listening to these four since the early Opkino days. So long, in fact, that every so often my favorite host changes. For what it's worth, it's currently Dave <laughs> Too Furious, even though my tastes generally align more with Dave, David's post-human worldview. I used to hate Patches, but now not only do I appreciate him, I actively enjoy his quirky sensibilities and points of view. And Katie, of course, is the glue and the master of keeping it real. Without her, the podcast might devolve into Entourage the Movie week in and week out. By the way, which Entourage characters represent these hosts? I wish I could tell you, but I never watched the show since even at the age of 20, when the show debuted in 2004, I knew I was too uncool to even live vicariously through these bros. I'll stop now and leave you all with this. I dread the day the band breaks up. Please podcast into your 90s. Thank you. Uh, I think David is Johnny Drama. And uh, (laughs) Dave is is definitely a Samantha. (laughs) That's what I'm more curious about. Which Sex of the City characters are we? You're Charlotte. I'm Charlotte? Yeah. Is she the redhead? No. David's is she the, the brunette? Yes. Why am I the Charlotte? That seems know. like calling me the Chandler, which I also get. Because you're and you did get engaged to that uh, guy who was impotent once. Yeah, Kyle McLaughlin. It was really weird. We've all been there. We've <laughs> anyway, uh, continue there. leaving us reviews. Uh, Jurassic Park voicemail offer is no longer valid except for that one guy who still needs to claim it. But, you know, we have other ways of giving you our undying gratitude. <laughs> Get in touch. We'll get your phone number. We'll all call you. It'll be good. All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> to say something. Nope. It's on you. This weekend, Pixar is releasing its first original movie since uh, a little thing called Brave, which we never discussed on the podcast and definitely didn't definitely talk about for months it's funny to me that it's been this long since uh, Pixar had an original movie, since for me, the Pixar logo at the beginning of the movie used to have this kind of Pavlovian responsive excitement, like getting eager for whatever you know new inventive thing they would bring out. But Allow me to just interject as Dave here for a second and say, bears, bears, <laughs> bears, boo. Yeah. Sorry. The, the secret plot of Inside Out is someone reacting to their mother being turned into a bear. It's yeah. tough. It's all over again. Thank that God would be great. Uh, anyway, Inside Out, it comes from Pete Docter, who uh, made Monsters, Inc. And, uh, up. God. Up. And, and Up, yes. Primarily Up is probably what you should have in mind. He made Monsters, Inc.? Yeah. He oh, was a co-director well, of that. Confusing. That, 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 that co-directing part may explain why that movie is so shitty. Monsters, Inc.? Yeah. Man. Uh, oh, yeah. Let's get this oh, all yeah. out of the table Easy to early. praise David now, huh? <laughs> Come at me. Uh, he also made Up, which made uh, everybody cry for the rest of their lives. Which Monsters, Inc. is much better than Finding Nemo, I should just say. That is not true. Here. Also, Finding up Nemo is, is one of the up, worst uh, Pixar movies. Up above the cars. 10 minutes into it and uh, then just slowly drifts for another 90. So, Wow. So let's come here to bury other Pixar movies and <laughs> talk about the one we made. Hey, I like Toy Story 3. David and I could go off of that. Oh, man. Uh, I'll yell. I first. like Pete Doctor because he looks like a cartoon character. He kind of does. Uh, and he is the director of Inside Out, which is a movie that, uh, according to him, was inspired by his own adolescent daughter who 
hit puberty and started going through some unpredictable emotional changes. The movie takes place. Uh, <laughs> that is the ultimate dad. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I hope his daughter. Well, his daughter's also the uh, inspiration for uh, Ellie, the character name in Up. So she's she won out too. She's also the inspiration for Mike Sully. It was a very difficult childhood for her. <laughs> and the inspiration for the Indominus yeah. Rex. Uh, so it takes place partly inside the mind of this girl in kind of the control panel room where these five, um, five various emotions, let me see if I can get it. Joy, sadness, anger, disgust, and fear. Kind of I didn't a- realize that disgust was like one of our main <laughs> emotions. No, it isn't. It and is dis- when, it's, you're, it's, when you're an 11 year old girl. Oh, that's it's true. Really, that's kind of how I rationalize it. But It's really just a more agitated version of fear. It's totally a B-team emotion. And the fact that Mindy Keeling has about six lines in the movie speaks to that. Wow. So those are the five <laughs> that are emotions. in the control room anyway, uh, kind of figuring out how to deal with her emotions. And then it also takes place uh, in the real world where this young girl is moving with her family from Minnesota to San Francisco. She is a big, big hockey fan and hockey player, Woo! which uh, automatically gets the early seal of approval. And uh, It's a masterpiece. Is, <laughs> I'm sorry. And I'm... she's not coping all that well with moving to San Francisco for, uh, you know, some of the reasons you might expect. So Her dad like, works for a tech startup, I think, so she has obvious emotional issues already right off yeah, the bat. Yeah, he's on his phone a good amount. What an um, so there's the His Silicon Valley movie. subplot is amazing. Yeah, I was really glad that the tie-in episode in the finale. That guy can finale. fuck though. He can fuck. Let's all agree. <laughs> so, emotional turmoil in the real world and then there is an adventure inside her head as joy and sadness wind up on kind of an adventure within the mind. And meet various characters along the way and learn various things about themselves. And there are some chases and things are brightly colored. And, you know, that's in some ways par for the Pixar course. But I think the thing that we've all been talking about and that David has kind of drawn a line in the sand about is that Inside Out is a very emotional movie. It's both about emotions and tackles some very vague and I think affecting concepts about managing your feelings and about learning how to mix in joy with the various other things that life can offer. And I think Amy Poehler's performance as Joy contributes a lot to this. And she's joined by Phyllis Smith of The Office, who's sadness, who's also, they make a really affecting team. Um, And I, like basically everyone else who was sitting in my vicinity, was tearing up by the end of this movie. And uh, David, before you get into why talking about feelings isn't the most interesting way to talk about this movie, Patches, is my assessment correct? Is this, does this hit you in the heart the way that it's intended to? I well, it's definitely intended to hit me in the heart. Um, there are moments in this movie where I do feel like they're they're taking that first part of up and kind of tr- stretching it out. And Michael Giacchino is doing some heavy lifting, and it's inevitable that this movie is emotional because, as you mentioned, it's about literally emotions and 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 young emotions. I think that's key too. Um, innocence and what we lose. Why we don't remember everything that happened to us as a kid because some memories fade and some emotions change and it's about a transitional time. It's not just about how we feel right now. It's about looking back. Not being nostalgic about it, but just remembering what we lose as we grow up. And I think that can be a, a, a very, it's a very delicate moment and they play it very delicately uh, yeah there's a there's a chase aspect here joy and sadness get separated from the group and they basically have to get back to home base as anger disgust and fear try to 
you know, keep this little girl afloat. It's worth um, noting anger, disgust, and fear are, even though they are those negative emotions, are still likable characters, which is kind of a Oh, yeah, everyone's very they, positive. Yeah, they just have a they job They don't do, do anything, but they're They don't likable. do anything. I mean, they, they banter, and they try and keep the ship afloat. I mean, they know that the objective here is to ha- help this girl have a great life, so they want to be... They want to replace Joy, but uh, oh, they, wanna, they can only they do it as well. They want to fill in for her while she's gone. None of them want to be the boss. Yes, and it's very difficult for <laughs> them. Um, but yeah, this this definitely hit me a few times, struck some chords in a way that David, that will make him like cat barf, that eh, eh, eh type barfing. <laughs> um, because uh, it, it's just basic. It's, simpli- it's simplistic. And I thought the, the filmmaking was really top-notch in a way that I haven't seen. I mean, I think on this podcast we've complained about animation before, you know, the difference between 2D and 3D, the difference between Hollywood pictures striving for beauty and settling for these cartoonish models that they'll run through silly adventure blueprints. And here there is an adventure aspect, but there's real beauty there uh, on all levels, the writing, the comedy, the and and the animation itself. And it really struck me. One character that hasn't been in the publicity at all is this um, imaginary friend named Bing Bong, <laughs> uh, voiced by Richard Kind, who is he is the aspect of the movie that I really connected with this yeah, uh, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. this creative aspect of the little girl who, you know, is struggling to find his place in the world. You know, and he she has is growing out of him, and uh, as as joy and sadness figure out their roles in the world, uh, you know, I know people on this planet who are way too happy and want everything to be happy, and that's what joy boiled down into one little person inside someone's head is trying to make the world mm-hmm. always happy, um, and and sadness is truly sad. There's all the time, and that balance I found really moving. And then mixing in creativity, this kind of trifecta as they uh, run through imagination land. They have all these wacky places that they can visit um, that are extensions of our own experiences, and I, I found it quite moving, I will say. And And uh, spectacularly animated. Um, I really they play a lot with two D and three D and changing the looks of characters and going to all these crazy places and using physical comedy and using uh, you know sharp wordplay. Uh, it's moving. It's it's running on all cylinders here. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, even though uh, the emotions are fairly humanoid, they take advantage of them being kind of the most abstract Pixar characters that that I can think of, at least off the top of my head. And the uh, fear voiced by Bill Hader has this kind of squishy Looney Tunes quality to him that is just really fun and inventive and changes all the time. And Bill Hader's obviously a really great voice actor, so those things work really well together. I think that was... The, I laugh so much in this movie, way more than... It's like crying, an improv so. game huh. or something. That's... It's just like everyone going in one direction and seeing how it always mixes and really dedicating themselves to That's those directions. That's funny because I thought this was one of Pixar's least funny movies. I don't think I laughed. I chuckled no, a few times no because it's so clever. I mean, it's so clever. It, it wields its high concept with such ease. Um, and with a minimum, even though much like Inception, which I think is an obvious point of comparison, uh, the it? it never occurred to me. To not not it. a second that I think about it. I think it's it's pretty similar. Pretty similar. I mean, they're inside um, dreams in that one, and there's a subconscious uh, level. Yes, I, I don't it's really all see about, that. I think it's all about connecting the, um, the the plot necessarily. It's all about connecting the events within the mind to how they are extrapolated to what's happening 
to the body outside. Um, Not really. On a structural level, they're very similar. Whatever. I mean, we don't have to. This doesn't have to be the hill that I choose to die on here. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm right. Play, anyway, we'll choose a different. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, um, the, the movie is, is very, very cleverly done. Uh, it's, I did not find it funny in the least bit. Uh, and if ever I did crack a smile, it was simply at the sheer virtuosity of Pete Doctor's imagination. Uh, more so, I mean, the three characters who are stayed behind, the three emotions are completely useless. And the thing is that really all the characters... they're really funny because they're useless. No. All of the characters, aside from joy and sadness, are really, by definition, one-dimensional uh, there's nothing to them. Um, I struggled with the purpose of disgust, uh, as Patches did. Um, and, but I think the, the biggest problem that I have with this movie are, is twofold. Um, one, I didn't feel as if the journey was at all meaningful to what was happening. I think Pixar, for all of their uh, the attention that their stories get, can get a little bit too plotty. And I think Inside Out suffers from that more so than almost any of their other movies, because this whole adventure that they're going on too seldom connects in a meaningful way to Riddle, uh, Riley's maturation. It, it really, I didn't necessarily know what it was. After a certain amount of time, I'd forgotten why they had to get where they were going and what it was meant to achieve. And the relationship really? that grows between joy and sadness, which is really meant to convey the idea that emotions um, can't quite be so raw and simple as you grow older, that they're complicated. Sadness always wants to touch things and introduce notions of nostalgia and things being bittersweet to Riley, um, which work on a very literal level. Uh, But I I never really felt like that progress was the least bit earned. And Bing Bong is a total whiff as far as I'm concerned. I know that he affected – Almost everybody I spoke to before I had seen the film and Patches and Katie. But uh, maybe it's just that I never had an imaginary friend. Um, well, I don't think I had an imaginary I, I don't friend, know. but he I, represents much more than that. Twitter is my imaginary friend. Yeah, That's all tell. of them. But the uh, – yeah, I, I did not connect to his character in the least bit. I was very happy when he went away. Um, and I don't think that these things are forgotten forever. I don't think that anyone who probably did have that fulfilling relationship with their imaginary friend would risk – uh, forgetting something like that, or that would be well, like a, I, I mean, a, there's only so threat. much brain space, as evidenced in uh, Inside Out. I also, I, I would really. Oh wait, uh, bet, 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 bet. I have one more fold of my twofold dislike okay. for the okay. movie. This, this uh, multifaceted. You were fractaling here with your. <laughs> I was, I was fractaling. Um, except for you may have derailed my train of thought as to what. Choo choo. There's an oh, actual oh, yeah, train of thought is. in the movie. Here it, <laughs> here it is. Oh right, God. Um, <laughs> The idea that I this is, in some capacity, Pixar's highest concept movie. It's the one that I think... Um, I think by sh- far it's... At least, yeah, by, by the sheer mechanics of its plot and, and the really all the layers that are at work here um, should appeal mo- most to adults, I think, of all their movies. And yet, I think that, at least for me, it's the kind of movie that I know that I would find this movie very valuable if I were... Riley's age, if I were struggling with making that transition. You would? And, and you would know of, that? <laughs> I keep well, wondering like, if kids will really connect with this I, I, I can't say for sure, but from what I can understand of myself, I I think that those if ever this movie was your, going uh, to be... Your 10-year-old self. If ever this movie was going to have any value to me, it was as... Uh, it, it would be sort of in the age that it represents um, and helping me to understand the, and learn the lessons that, that Riley learns. As an adult... 
everything that happens in the movie is very self-evident. It is not a convincing stroll down memory lane. And, and really, despite the fact that it is literally the most emotional movie ever made, one could say, uh, I felt absolutely nothing watching it other than being awestruck at its cleverness, which uh, well, unfortunately is not really enough. I, I really felt soul. I felt absolutely nothing watching this. I think that it is a, a movie that is too sophisticated for all of its nuances to be appreciated by its target audience children. But it's also, um, aside from the Cars movies and perhaps A Bug's Life, uh, it has the least to offer for adults. And I still think it's one of Pixar's better movies simply because of the craft on display. Um, but it's a hollow center for me. And I and I say that with sadness and joy uh, because I, I really, really loved Amy Poehler and whoever it is that plays sadness. I thought they were a lot of fun. Uh, I just, I kind of wish that this movie took place in somebody else's head. I would love to see Inside Out Lewin Davis or something. I don't know. Any, the movie ends you with a montage. You want a boring white guy instead of a, a young girl who... <laughs> no, that's really, it's really more for the wordplay than anything else. But the movie ends with a montage of looking into other characters' heads well, and animals and whatever. And like, I was like, they're, they're all much more interesting. So many. I don't, I don't think that I felt nostalgia over this transitional phase depicted in the film. Instead, I, I thought about a lot of people I know and their emotional states and that how people develop, you know. People aren't so lucky to to have this epiphany early on like this little girl does and, and understand their emotions so clearly. Everyone's figuring it out on the fly that someone could – you know, realize their emotion. They can be happy and sad about something. Um, the the revelations that Joy goes through in this movie, I think, are really valuable to adults who kind of ignore their emotions. So I think it works on on two levels that aren't necessarily looking back. It's it's very of the moment for young people, but it's 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 kind of a wake up call. I I want to know to you guys um, what. Without, if you can answer this as vaguely as possible, without spoiling it for people out there, <laughs> what is it that made you tear up in this movie? Because I couldn't, I, I was so on the outside looking in that I couldn't even guess, other than maybe a certain moment involving Bing Bong, uh, what it was that triggered such well, tears of sadness from everybody else that I know. So what, what really hit it for me is when I realized kind of on my own, like, oh, you know, what they're really getting at is that when you mix joy and sadness, you get nostalgia. Like, I wonder if that's something that they're aiming for. And then I realized that that's exactly what they were aiming for. Even were, were you just realizing that? No, like, I mean, I realized it while I was watching the movie. Such an asshole. Like, I never, I, had no, I didn't know. Such a dick. I didn't think about it as you know deliberately mixed the way that it does in the movie, and they they never say the word nostalgia in this. And I, I don't think I, it's about nostalgia. Well, I think you're on, confusing a mixture of emotions as nostalgia. Thanks for interrupting. Thanks for letting me continue. No, David interrupted you first. Don't you me. both? Okay, so, not all men. What they're going for <laughs> at the end of it is what you know. This girl is kind of able to look back at her memories with both a mixture of joy and sadness, which is what we all feel when we feel nostalgia, and recognizing that it makes me think of this um this line in the, the musical fantastics just bear with me for a second the longest the, running show on broadway yeah and they uh these kind of fairy tale lovers are deliberately separated and made to feel pain because they have this line that says without the without a hurt the heart is hollow and that's something that's kind of resonated with me many times i think because of whatever joy-esque tendencies in my life and i think that's i mean that's something that resonates for me every time 
I see it. So when I see it represented in this really inventive, clever way and kind of sneaking up on me, I was so, I think, like David said, like really impressed by the ingenuity of the filmmaking and also just emotional thinking about what it means to be able to recognize those feelings in yourself. Yeah, I mean, David uh, vaguely alluded to um, a moment involving Bing Bong, this kind of creative, uh, the creative figure in in the movie and his big moment. Um, that that certainly pulled at a heartstring for me, mostly because they also throw to a callback line that just it hits. It's good writing. I mean, I understand that I'm being manipulated on some level because of the craft, but well, you know you're what? In a it's, movie, yeah, you know? it's a movie. Um, I also, you know, I get, te- I got a little teary when, you know, joy and sadness are figuring out their positions in the world. This isn't just the, the maturation of uh, Riley, the girl that they're inside. They're, they are having, they are discovering things. They're having epiphanies. And um, I will say there, I there was are moments little... where they're, they're sifting through. So the, the whole movie, we haven't really touched on this. Um, the MacGuffin, I suppose, are these set of memories, these core memories. And what the problem is, is that, um, joy wants to protect them because right now they're classified as happy memories. But when and when sadness touches them, they turn blue and they become sad memories. And they're kind of back and forth over, you know, what are their purposes? Why do we have these emotions? And I think figuring out, you know, really being introspective as this entire movie is because it takes place inside the mind, um, you know, just to declare these things and, and blow past our preconceptions about our emotions, I thought it was a real thrill. I I got a little teary about it. I I do think that the, I was a little hung up on trying to understand how these emotions existed, what their dynamics were in the brain. Well, I I don't think it is. I mean, I think that it's a fault of the world building. Maybe it's a fault of my own, but I was really caught up on the power dynamics between them and how uh, they would there would never be any argument as to who was going to be leading the way and like what emotion was going to take the helm um and sadness seemed to have no agency of her own she was simply a force of nature that was happening and like all these things as i say them out loud say like oh that that sounds like how it works in real life but it (laughs) but in the office like environment where they live and exist and work and don't get any time off or paid vacation there is this feeling that I, I didn't necessarily understand the structure between them, and uh, um, I don't know. It didn't. It, while it That's played, interesting because I feel well, like I understood in it real thematically, places, in I real didn't offices, feel like the dominant force are these happy-go-lucky people that just want to make everything perfect. It's like really, this, it's like the fraternity sorority mentality, and then the common no. workplace. Or, mentality where no, the happy people are I, I'm to make sorry in every happy. office in every office I've ever worked you've worked the, in two offices maybe <laughs> in every office I've ever worked Listen, I'm also relaying uh, people in the corporate world welcome you've uh-huh. never been there and I never will and you never uh, will yeah. For, and that's a good thing because then you would be dominated by smiling people I suppose. Um, I think we're meant to see Joy as like the chipper camp counselor who needs to be really. Like, oh, I, 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 I think, I think she's the, the chipper. Per, I think that's actually what is written in her character description. Yeah, that sounds uh, exactly on, how I described her. Like you guys were pulling against her from the from. The, no, no, she just no, needs a wake up call. That's no, all. Can, you added you added the needs to be defeated well, what, parenthetical, but the happy that's camp not, counselor. Yes. Yeah. That, no, I get the cap, happy camp counselor thing, but she's. Spo- I mean, she is a force for good. Like I, I, I don't see her as like they all are. The chipper person in your office who you're annoyed by like it kind of it gets gets you out of that kind of i mean the intent her her intentions are are good 
And anybody in an office who wants to make everyone happy, their intentions are good. You don't want to defeat them, but they're not being positive. They're not having. They're not seeing nuance in their ensemble, right? She yeah. she just needs a wake up call. She needs to understand what sadness is and what sadness brings to the table and how sadness can function in their group and and mix and mingle. Um, yeah, and, and they do a really good job of that. There's a, a right, scene I where agree. Uh, sadness is talking to Bing Bong and kind of. Uh, says, Love that you know, scene. echoes his sadness back at him, and Joy doesn't really understand why that's effective. And it just happens the one time, and sadness kind of proves her worth, and it's not like it's some, uh, it's not true to some revelation. That was just a nice, like, little elegant moment of character and also, you know, emotion building that the, the story has a lot of, I think. They do a really good job of not drawing a super hard line on its successful moments like that. Yeah, that's where I'd really butt heads with David over this one, just, like, feeling that they do earn these changes and these emotional beats. I think there are moments early on in the film that if you got caught up in them, you know, there are a few montages too many that are about memories and all these touching growing oh, yeah. up moments and kind of boyhoodish, um, really, really playing into how beautiful growing up is as a family. Um, and I find that to be a little saccharine, but they blow past that pretty quickly as Riley ages into the, the age that she is for the, the most of the film, and that's when the film really takes off. I will say that I, I would not be the least bit surprised if on second viewing, now that I have the lay of the land a little bit more than I did the first time through, I appreciate the movie a little bit more than I did, although I still struggle much in the same way as I did with Up, where I think the plot sort of gets in the way, uh, as I think like, what almost plot? always happens I mean, in Pixar movies. Even the adventure across this mindscape seems to be pretty straightforward and a lot of it is just uh you know the cherries on top while they're as they're racing back home i mean i love you know they go through this labyrinth of of memories which is really fun they meet paula poundstone which i really enjoy um and then they go into imagination land and see all sorts of wacky things they oh my favorite part of the movie is when they be they get caught up in abstract thought and they change from bubbly CG characters into boxy Picasso-esque characters. That's your favorite into, part of the movie? I love that part. Well, that's like it an animation buff's dream. I mean, you're seeing Pixar play with all of its tools and go back to the basics and then stretch it, stretch the concept as far as it can go. I love that. I wish she had a Studio Ghibli part of her mind. Yeah. Can I ask you guys a really specific kind of nitpicky David-esque question that I did genuinely wonder <laughs> about? And this is about a yes. scene that has been released as a clip online, so I don't think it's spoilery, but we get glimpses inside both her parents' heads. And uh, they have the same kind of colored, vaguely familiar characters inside their minds of all five of the emotions, but the mother's brain command center is run by sadness, and the father's brain command center is run by anger. Ah, uh, yes, the think piece question. Well, I don't even no. know if I mean well, but wouldn't it say why they did it? Like, wouldn't why it? Okay. Sense? First of all, I was greatly perturbed that if you watch the European trailers for the movie, the father is daydreaming not about hockey but about soccer, uh, <laughs> which you is think bullshit. The whole movie has changed to be about Just soccer. No artistic integrity. No, I don't think that they were, went quite that far. But shame, 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 shame. shame. <laughs> um, anyway. Uh, I, I, again, I'm a bit slippery on the mechanics here. I don't know if sadness was just running the control center at that particular moment because yeah, maybe when you're sadness adult, was the dominant expression. Right, yeah. right. I mean, like you feel certain things at different times. But like also an adult, I don't understand why, like the emotions should have to work in tandem all the time because I think the whole idea of the movie is that. Well, they do actually. Unadulterated. It's just one in person the, it, who's calling the shots. Yeah, in the child okay. brain, they have a very small control center and you're swapping 
dropping in people, right? You know, and then you get swear words. But then, yeah, and then and then dad and mom have gigantic like Star Trek Enterprise control centers where all five of them can sit and like man controls and be complex. Yeah, that's true. That, I mean, I but I know sad they, is in the center of that in the yeah, woman's head. I'm just kind of curious about. I mean, I would. I guess this is a Pete Doctor question. I just wonder if you guys know. Well, in that moment, she's also fantasizing of the uh, Latin helicopter, helicopter boy that she left behind. Dad, the muscular yes. dream. Um, but but yeah. Um, uh, what was I going to say? I can't even remember. My emotions are. Fighting with each other. Disgust. (laughs) Disgust. (laughs) Disgust. Disgust. Shame. Shame. But wait, so David, what you did like about this movie was the voice talent? You thought everyone was a a waste, but no? No, Amy Poehler is fantastic. Uh, The woman whose name I can never remember. Great. Um, I, you know, Mindy Kaling is just a giant waste. I I think I, I, a large large part of this is coming from bitterness at just how bad her television show has gotten, uh, and that's unfair. That's however, a B, that's a B level emotion. No wait, I that know. right. But um, yeah, however, yeah, I don't think there's a performer alive who could have uh, made anything memorable with the material that she's given. There's just sure, character disgust again, a B team emotion. Um, what would you have replaced really... it with? I'm, I've been I was racking. My well, brain. I think that it's a subsection of fear. I mean, I don't think that it, I, I haven't thought too much about what it if there had been to lust, be a emotion. Right? It should have been like a Pepe Le Pew. For, that could have been uncomfortable in a movie. About yeah, that would have been really but, uh, Yeah, maybe lust shows up uh, later. Hello, yeah. Inside Out Two. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I just I. I Richard Kind, I struggled with a little bit. Um, Loved I just him. didn't really like anything about Bing Bong. Loved him. Um, but, yeah, the boy, I mean, I think Amy Poehler and Sadness are the only, Phyllis Smith are the only characters who really matter as far as voice talent goes in this movie. Bill, and Bill they both Hader? deliver. I thought Bill Hader was so amazing. And he Louis Black is anger. He's, he's neurotic. He has an entire sequence of uh, being on dream duty that's so funny. Oh, my funny. gosh. That is really funny. It's fine. <laughs> Spit taking coffee. It's fine. I think I think the pi- the the Pixar glean is just gone forever for me. I mean, for this you. is obviously a clear step up from uh, everything they've made in a long time. I mean, there's no denying or debating that. However, uh, I just I think that these movies just sort of grate on me now. Um, I don't. Yeah, sucks not, to be you. I'm sucks. Just gonna cut to uh, ten years from now when you have a kid and like watch this movie. Well, so that's what's interesting. Oh, I but like, I, I would but speaking to what I was saying about maybe appreciating this movie when I was ten. I mean, I think that I would eagerly show this to a kid of mine when they were of proper age. Uh, I just think that I might be a little bored myself. Really? I well, you were you were talking about what we were kind of tearing up at, and I think. A thought certainly crossed my mind that I'm just like, oh, it's it's so fascinating to watch a kid grow up. Not that I feel nostalgic for my own experience and my emotional journey, but to like be part of that as a parent seems really amazing, you know, to get to experience that or to, to watch in horror as someone deals with their own emotions. I, I found yeah. it to be kind of exhilarating. I mean, I obviously I'm of the age where the maybe the parent bug is is biting, but uh this 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 made you want to procreate? Made me want to, just did. Right before oh this. Oh my god. Uh, I have decided that this is the most dangerous the movie ever made. <laughs> it 
reminds me kind of what uh, The Fault in Our Stars in a very different way did last summer when I realized I was identifying more with Laura Dern's mom character. Made you want to get cancer? Oh, And sorry. thinking, uh, just thinking about kind of the terror of not just, uh, you know, having a kid go through something horrible, but in this movie, like a kid going through something that you can't reach them through and kind of right. watching someone experience adolescence that you're very familiar with, but that you're so separate from. It's a... Yeah, that was another affecting part of the movie for me. It's also so simple. I mean, I really appreciate how, you know, Riley's story takes place in the span of, what, two days from moving and and integrating into a new school and trying for a new hockey team. Just like these very small moments that, you know, they still feel small even when joy and sadness are on their big crazy adventure trying to catch a train back to, you know, HQ. Um it all feels very intimate, um, and that's just inherent into who our main characters are. But, uh, you know, no, Riley doesn't have to save the day in this movie either. They don't have to, like, grab her controls and save her parents from, like, no, getting uh, smushed or something. No alien ship hovers over San Francisco. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. I kept thinking about Big Hero 6, actually. I'm just like, <laughs> this movie is so much more beautiful than that. Uh like... Comparing animation yeah, styles mean, and character and character character work. Character, 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 it may not be not fair, but I, I'm certainly holding a Pete Doctor Pixar film to a much higher standard than I would. Uh, not that I gave a pass to Big Hero Six, but uh, it should go without saying that this is a far more creative and refined experience oh, than. Oh, should we talk about the short? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh let's wrap God. by mentioning it's the lava. So bad. It's probably it's the so worst bad. thing that has ever happened. <laughs> To the earth, I think, or at least like using David hyperbole or like he's back. No, I mean, I it's I just mean the characters are literally parts of the earth. Like oil spills are bad. (laughs) Oil spills are definitely bad, and like global warming, climate change, they're real problems. But lava, Pixar's lava, piece of shit, destroying the earth. Actual. Well, I just I mean that I thought Blue Umbrella. The characters are of the earth, and uh, are. It's a movie just short film about uh, a volcano who wants someone to love and who sings a very insipid song about it. Essentially, the lyrics to the song are so One day, someone realized that the word lava kind of sounds like love. And then, in the vein of that terrible cover of Somewhere Over the Rainbow that uh, (laughs) plagued us in the Adam Sandler movie, Fifty First Dates, decided to make a (laughs) 10-minute musical about... uh, tectonic shifts and volcanic eruptions and it's vaguely ejaculatory uh it's i it's i did like they i i like that they got to use the turtles from finding nemo it's 10 of the worst minutes you will ever have (laughs) it's uh i I do not agree with hyperbole but it's also terrible so if you show up late what happened like I don't understand how it could be so bad. Why does Pixar feel like it needs to make these movies about two? Where is Tyler Durden? Clouds. We've had umbrellas. Where is Tyler Durden to go to every theater in the country or simply find the one DCP file he needs to to replace Lava with World of Tomorrow and create a better generation of American children? Yeah, I'm sure kids would love the uh, Hello, 25th Emily. century. Future movie. So skip, skip lava. Uh, but, uh, I think all of this. World of Tomorrow would probably be a lot more fitting a uh, preamble to Inside Out than lava. You're out of your mind. Go, go find out your of my mind. Mm, um, 
Yes. Yes, Before actually. We this episode, we, uh, well, you guys wanted to talk briefly about me and Earl and the Dying Girl, which is now in limited release. I still haven't seen it. But uh, it's interesting because uh, you guys both came out of Sundance relatively positive, but I do think the backlash has begun. <laughs> I wait. Oh, back up. I did not oh, see shit, this at mind. Sundance. I, I don't remember. But David did, and he was surprised. I know. Well, I was surprised that David recall. was positive too, and I think at least, at least some people in this world were holding out hope for it based on David's affection for it. Apparently. Uh, so what's the deal with this backlash? Is this just what happens when you have a Sundance? This- I'm on the backlash train. I am not a fan. Oh. Uh, well, the backlash was, I don't want to be too cynical about it, but I certainly understand where those people are coming from because Bring it. I think that when a movie that sounds like me and Earl and the Dying Girl, just beginning with the title, let alone the plot, which is about, uh, I described it as the fault uh, with our the fault in our stars for Criterion Collection fetishists. It's about a young teenage cinephile and his best friend slash co-worker, as he calls him, Earl uh, and the dying girl, Rachel, who has leukemia, and Greg is assigned by his parents essentially to spend some time with her. She stays at home dying, and he is ultimately tasked with making – he makes parody films with his friend Earl, parodies like Eyes Wide Butts and Pooping Tom and A Sockwork Orange. Ha, ha, ha. And uh, he is tasked with making an original film, which scares him to death, having to become his own person for Rachel – uh, and that's the movie. The backlash uh, was well in a way, well on its way before any of the people who were leading the charge actually saw the movie. Um, and that's sort of how. Please don't discredit my dislike for this. Movie. I am. I don't mean to discredit it. I'm simply talking about the, the how the Undermine. tsunami of uh, response. I, I do think this movie is being widely misunderstood. I think it is not a. Uh, a sh- well, that's a what you think about every movie to... that people don't agree with you. They're a misunderstanding. But you are having a serious emotional reaction to this movie that, you know, you, you have told me that you've been entangled by this movie, that it's working on a different level. Well, I, I was speaking a little bit more broadly and saying that people have accused it of being sort of a shrine to adolescent narcissism, whereas I am in the middle of what is now a, I don't, I don't a 4,000-word think piece, which will be published next week, arguing about This is not Zach Braff's how it's the uh, cancer movie by any means. Yeah. Uh, it, it isn't. I think that this is a movie about uh, realizing that everyone else around you is not simply a character in your life. Um, and uh, I think that it is sort of the opposite of a shrine to adolescent narcissism. And I look forward to arguing that at great length. But I do think that this is a very clever, very cleverly directed uh, movie that grapples honestly with grief and loss and coming of age in a way that a lot of movies that have more adult trappings are afraid to and did you direct you interviewed the director i did i did uh i where where is that that, people won't be able to read that until september um oh boo yeah that's gonna be in the september issue of little white lies and then the longer version will be online but yeah i had you know i i the long and short of it for people who listen to the show know that my dad isn't doing very well i saw this movie in sundance before he was sick um, and I thought one thing about it, and then I saw it again after he, he was sick, and uh, I actually thought the movie was a little bit sloppier in its construction the second time around and didn't quite work as fluidly as I had remembered, but it also, for obvious reasons, hit me a lot harder emotionally the second time around. But it did, it also, it caused me to appreciate, I, I thought it, it, it it's complex take on those 
emotions, a little bit more nuance. It's not a simple story of like, oh, he learns this thing about himself. I mean, I think there's a certain senselessness to the story that um, I certainly took the heart. And the director was inspired to make this movie. It's adapted from a novel, but he was really took to the project um, and dedicated it to his late father, who also died of cancer. Uh, and so he and I got along famously talking about our uh, our shared uh, commonalities. But um, I, I think that this movie is a lot more substantial than people who want to write it off as a twee Wes Anderson well, knock will give it credit for. I'll say this. Well, oh, it's definitely not a Wes Anderson. That's the, the lowest form of criticism at this point, calling something a Wes Anderson knock. Uh, I will agree with you, David, that I think – the end of this movie is very substantial. Um, I feel like there's a huge swell of emotions that I wasn't feeling at all throughout the entire film until the last 10 or 15 minutes uh, when everyone starts acting real and and what's on the table emerges finally as something that is is actually haunting them all and when they have to start treating each other like real people. Um, the discoveries leading up to that, to talk about, you know, we mentioned in Inside Out not being feeling earned. Um, I, I didn't feel like this movie really earned any of this uh, material at the end of the film. It was very impactful. But it certainly hits you hard and, and in, with raw honesty at the end when the cancer moment swells and Thomas Mann and this girl, Olivia Cook just share these really incredible moments separately and together. Um, but throughout the movie, I was just like, I mean, the camera in this movie swirls around people faster than in Mad Max. Like, the camera work in this film is insane and, and really destructive. To oh, oh. I think. Um... And and I really don't I, appreciate the kind of twee notion that they're making these films. It just does not feel like them at all. I don't really know who these characters are for a very well, long time in this film. And it's and it's sad because when you do get to know them, you wish you could have just spent a whole film with these people and what they were like before these big twists. Well, I think my, my response to that would be that this is a movie that is very, very, very much told from the perspective of its main character who is telling the story in retrospect and narrating it um, and is completely self-loathing in, a, in an, a movie in a way that the movie never apologizes for. It's something that I may never have seen in a movie before, um, just how much, and they toned it down from the novel, how much this character hates himself um, and struggles with the lessons that he supposedly learns. And uh, as a cinephile, particularly one who's in, as indebted to Thelma Schoonmacher and Martin Scorsese and the likes as Alfonso Gomez Rejon, the director, used to work for Scorsese. Um, he is stylizing, while he's writing a book, that's the framing device of the movie, it, it's, a, it's like a book slash admissions essay to the University of Pittsburgh. Um, we are really, everything he sees and how he sees it is filtered through the imagination of an unapologetic 17-year-old kid uh, who is stylizing his world in the way that I believe this character would. And I think that uh, some of the criticisms I've read of the movie, and the long-form criticisms that have really laid out their opinions in detail, I have found fault with because they forget or simply neglect to track how much yeah, give them of some this credit. movie is... Um, the product of a character's perspective and it indulges in that character's fallibilities. And I think there's a real bravery to that. Um, and, you know... I, I wish it was a little more stylized to that effect then. I, I don't think it goes as far as it could 
to be from that one perspective because too much of the quirk exists outside his scope is part of nurture from his kooky dad Nick Offerman and his uh, mismatched mother Connie Britton and his friend who isn't a friend like that whole dynamic is very strange and then there's flashbacks in the middle of the movie and Olivia Cook who plays the friend who's you know kind of pushed into his life I mean, it all seems to exist outside of him with, in a way that he, it do, I don't believe that he can tell me from his perspective. Oh, I... Um, but I wish, I wish it's true. I didn't get that sense at all. I mean, he's in every scene in the movie. They, all these characters are... <laughs> I know, we disagree. ...are total, you know, caricatures because that's, you know, how he, See, he sees himself as the only, you know, this is part of his, his friend to all nations philosophy approach to high school, which is designed to... Uh, make sure that he doesn't have any enemies, but of course it backfires and, and works in a way that he refuses to allow himself to have any friends. Um, and so everyone, he is sort of this uniquely sensitive soul, he believes, at least for most of the movie, and everyone else is this wacky character who doesn't really have a, um, a center, a core uh, that makes them real. And I think his relationship with Rachel makes him realize that his egocentrism is, is flawed and holding him back. Uh, and I thought that that development tracked really well. I don't think this is a great movie, but I do think it's it's a strangely courageous one, uh, <laughs> which is I I I'd back so, that. I, I'm on board um, with that. Assessment. And uh, yeah, there's a lot a lot of really interesting things going on. Um, it As, it probably didn't help its uh, the the level of discourse around it and its reputation that it won Sundance, but uh, at least it's getting out there. I don't really feel like that dilutes or that uh, t- you know, poisons people's that, reactions that as make, much that as That makes people think. have their knives out for it, especially if it's a cute comedy. I would hope. I mean, I, I guess I give people a little more no, you should never do that. why that would rile. I mean, I'm there at Sundance. Didn't get to see it. It won the all the awards. I mean, I could not have thought twice about anything about this movie. I just wanted to see it. I don't know why anyone would feel... You know, they were gunning for this movie. Why? Because it looked like Fault in Our Stars or it was kind of twee Sundance bullshit? Is that what people believed the it was? I don't yes. know. I don't know why anyone would. And, uh, I haven't seen it, so I don't <laughs> know that I, I might it... overcome it or not, but I do find it's a little of a weird title, actually. I don't know if it it's completely. Fit. I think it's only called the Dying Girl because it rhymes with Earl. It's so <laughs> weird and dehumanizing. Uh, well, I don't think she gets a lot to do. Well, with I think that's part of the. I, again, I think that's part of the movie's appeal. Not that I. Not that I think that she's. Uh, I really want to sideline all the female. No, I, but I think that again, no, I, it speaks I know to the perspective. Yes, yes, it speaks I to know, in terms of the I character. Guess. I think that he sees her in a way that a lot of teenage boys think of teenage girls. Uh, but anyway, I do think, unfortunately, patches that uh, the movie's gangbusters for at Sundance immediately put people on the attack, got the knives out. Well, that's that's how it here's works. Here's the real thing we should we should wrap up on. Did you love the part of me and Earl in the dining Where they played when Molly Shannon goes, I'm 50 years old. <laughs> no. uh, but I did love all the Brian Eno oh, music. Even if you that, hate no. me and Earl, you get like almost 45 minutes worth of unadulterated Brian Eno classics. So wow. just close your eyes and enjoy it. Plus Molly Shannon, but not screaming quotes from us. Yet. We'll see what happens in the director's Yet. cut. That does it for this week's Fighting in the Warm Room. We'll be back next week, we swear, with our quarter quell. Looking forward to it. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. 
I am Matt Patches, I'm the senior writer of Esquire.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And I don't think I've written anything about Inside Out this week. We'll see. I'm David Ehrlich, I am the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor of Large of Little White Lies magazine. You can find my probably shortened down defense of me and Earl and the Dying Girl on the Dissolve, I think, next Monday, <laughs> if I ever finish it. Where the, the comment sections will be. Yeah, there's no, no other website fire. that I could write that for, so... Um, that's where it will be. And uh, you can find me on Twitter, David Ehrlich, and you can find all of us together on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. Um, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com, or I don't also don't know if I'll have written about Inside Out. And on uh, Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And after you've seen uh, Inside Out, tweet at me and tell me if you think the cat joke is the best joke in the I also want to hear those tweets because I enjoyed yeah, the cat joke. Good. I enjoyed the cat joke too. It's after the movie, but it's, <laughs> it's funny. It's, uh, it's uh, anyway, you'll know it when you see it. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. Yeah.